I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. My guest today is Maureen Fan, co-founder and CEO of nine-time Emmy award-winning interactive animation studio, Baobab. With a Stanford degree, a Harvard MBA, and a resume including positions at eBay and game developer Zynga, Maureen's early career looks more like that of a tech entrepreneur than a storyteller. But her great strength is that she's both. After an early experience with VR, Maureen quickly saw the potential of the nascent medium and harboring a lifelong passion for animation, she left Zynga in 2015 to found Baobab with DreamWorks veteran Eric Darnell. In the years since, the studio has made a name for itself with its wildly popular VR films, featuring all-star casts including the likes of Oprah Winfrey, John Legend, Daisy Ridley, and Ali Wong. Baobab's films are the closest thing to blockbusters that VR has seen and have earned the studio the title of the Pixar of virtual reality. But Maureen's aspirations extend way beyond VR, and Baobab is now working on adaptations of its projects in film, streaming, books, and graphic novels. In many ways, Baobab is not only an animation studio, but also a tech startup. They've developed their own proprietary real-time animation platform and have utilized artificial intelligence and machine learning to develop responsive characters for their interactive narratives. It's not easy to walk the line between Hollywood and Silicon Valley, especially as an Asian female CEO in a sector dominated by white men. Maureen has done so with astonishing success and integrity. And it's my great pleasure to welcome her onto today's episode of the FOSS Podcast. Maureen, it's such a pleasure and really an honor to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. So I'd love to start by hearing the backstory of Baobab and how did you come up with the idea in the first place and and start this amazing company? Oh, um, well, I've always loved animation my entire life. And uh, the reason why I love animation is because I feel like when we were five years old, we could make, we thought we could do anything. We're invincible, but something happens as we grow older and we're pressured by society to conform to values of fame, money, beauty. But I think there's still a dreamer inside us all, right? And that we still can be that little kid. And that's what animation does for me. It's whenever I watch animation or I'm taking, um, or I'm playing an animated game, I'm taking back to that five-year-old sense of self when I thought anything was possible. And I leave feeling so invincible that I can do anything. And I fundamentally feel that people have so much more potential than they realize. And if they just allowed themselves to dream and believe that they could do it, that they would actually go for it. And we as a species could accomplish even more. But I wasn't going to go compete against Pixar or Disney uh, without unfair distribution advantage or huge amounts of capital. So when VR came about, I saw it as a chance um, because it's technological disruption. No one had an advantage. And I was like, oh, I can make um, a name for ourselves in this brand new market because no one has an advantage. And that's why I ultimately did it. And also, you know, animations about putting you in a world and making you feel so real that you think you could reach out and touch it. And that's the definition of, 
you know, this virtual worlds that we can be in. So it was just really exciting, both from a creative aspect and also business wise. Last thing I just want to mention is I've realized, I didn't realize until recently that I think one of the reasons why I loved animation so much is because I grew up in a town in New Jersey, which is the best state in the nation. I love New Jersey, but I was picked on a lot because I was the only Asian American in my school. And I think I, I was bullied and I think I felt really um, insecure and, and trying to find my place. And I do think that animation was in a way an escape from that. And I don't think I realized that until recently when all the anti, all the Asian hate crimes started to happen that I, I realized that that had a huge impact in my love for animation. Wow, wow. Well, I, I really relate to the part that you just said of discovering that inner child and, and reconnecting with it through your professional life. I, I often say that really what I've always tried to do with my career is also rediscover the joys I had as, as a child. And I think a lot of people think it's, that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> like you're supposed to somehow grow out of that or um, those are frivolous and silly for little kids. And, and in fact, you understand some sort of greater wisdom that comes from from that inner child or that experience as you as a young girl. So you decided to start this with VR because it was sort of an open space, right? Everybody had an even playing field in a way. Yeah. Also, it's like the the mission of the company is to inspire you to dream. So what I was just saying about why I love animation, inspire you to dream, bring out your sense of wonder, make you matter. And that last sentence of make you matter is only achievable when you can actually interact, I believe, with the other characters and within the story itself. So we try to make you a character inside the audience that develops relationships with the other characters. And that means that you can actually change the storyline and you feel like you really matter in there. And VR was one of the most perfect mediums to allow that to happen because it's really important for you to bond with these characters and care about them, right? To to make decisions um, and for you to truly bond with these characters, you like VR was a perfect medium because it allows you to feel like you're literally there talking to a real character rather than through some kind of screen that has like you have to press buttons and, and think about, you know, there's more distance between you and those characters. My first exposure really to Baobab was the invasion piece that you created, um, which I just thought was extraordinary. And I think we we featured it at Faust, and partially it's because of the animation quality, which was really just world class, and partially because of using the medium in a way that really allowed for interactivity. It was such a mature piece. Like, it actually stood out above almost everything else I remember seeing at the time in VR, as, as these were still very early days in VR. How did you create that piece? How did you create it at such a high level? Where did you come from? How did you do that? <laughs> well, all the credit goes to Eric Darnell, my co-founder. So Eric Darnell, um, he directed DreamWorks' first ever full-length CG animated film, Ants. Uh, and he went on to write and direct all four Madagascar films. Uh, so he is a formidable <laughs> creative, and he's <laughs> my co-founder and chief creative officer. So he had decided, at this point, they had shut down PDI, which was the technical arm of DreamWorks. DreamWorks actually acquired PDI to become 
DreamWorks Animation. They shut down the Redwood City office up in the San Francisco Bay Area and wanted Eric to move south to LA. And he's like, no, <laughs> do that. <laughs> so he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do next. Um, and my mentor, Glenn Entis, who's a co-founder of PDI DreamWorks Animation, introduced me to Eric. And I put the headset on him and he was blown away. But he had always had this idea of when he listened to the War of Worlds World of the Worlds intro about how uh, these alien creatures were coming and how the aliens didn't realize that the Earth's atmosphere, they wouldn't have done that research to know that it was an issue. And so he's like, well, these aliens are kind of silly. So he's like, what if I make them super silly and they're defeated by the cutest, sweetest of animals, which is this cute little bunny. And so the, the meek of the earth are actually the ones defending it. So he's really, he's hilarious. So fun <laughs> to work with him. So he came up with that idea really quickly. And we just said, hey, can we do it? And we didn't know what we were doing at all. So he came up with the innovative idea of making you a bunny. So when you look down, you have a bunny body and that bunny comes out at you. And so we just experimented. We did it in literally, um, I think it was less than two months. So tell me, why are you two are such good partners? What, what was the magic to, to you two getting together, you and Eric? So usually when directors start out, they're oftentimes very insecure and it, it makes sense. <laughs> you don't know how to direct your new director and everyone's looking to you. But Eric, having directed five hit feature films, he is a very secure person. So he has nothing to prove. That means that everything that he's doing is coming out from pure love and joy of doing it, right? He doesn't need, he, he's had a like huge, great career. And so now he's doing just what he enjoys. So I think that really helps honestly ground me because me as an entrepreneur can be quite insecure and frantic. I, I would say all entrepreneurs are kind of crazy. Um, and so his constant, like, no, we're doing this for the right thing. We're doing this because of love helps ground me as an entrepreneur because my job is constantly to, like, deal with FOMO and money and <laughs> the societal <laughs> values that I just, like, told you I want to rail against. And then he just really respects my business ability and we do our own thing, yet he knows that I really love the creative part. So he makes sure that I get to be a part of it. So I think I say we're good friends too. Well, so so tell me about the experience of being a female CEO, a minority trying to go raise money. I've heard that, that that's not exactly the um, image of the person who gets all the funding from Silicon Valley. So <laughs> what was your experience? It's hard to know because you can never, you never know you know, how much being a female and being a minority affects you. I have had very awful thoughts at times in dark moments of if being a white man would just give me 0.000001 chance more of closing this deal, then do I have a fiduciary duty to not be CEO? Because that for a startup can mean life and death, right? So and it's horrible to have to That's feel a that way. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, I love this company. I built it, so I'm not leaving it. But it sucks to have to think that. And I oftentimes joke to people, if I were a white man, I'd be president. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know for fundraising that they had a study at Stanford Business School where they showed if they had the same exact pitch deck with a female voiceover versus a male voiceover, but the same exact content, same exact script 
the woman was, I believe, I can't remember, 30 or 40% less likely to get funding. So it's the same exact content and material. So you always have to wonder, you know, how that affects you. Um, the good thing is we were very successful in raising two rounds of funding. I guess it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do have failures, you know, you, you sometimes wonder how that impacts um, you. That being said, I used it as thing as a way to drive towards outcomes that I wanted. So for example, all the talent that we've worked with. So Oprah, John Legend, Lupita Nyong'o, Constance Wu, Diego Luna, Ali Wong, Kate Winslet, Daisy Ridley, Jennifer Hudson. You hear the people that I just mentioned are usually women or minorities. That was on purpose because I feel like media has a way to transform perspectives in a way that nothing else can. And if if I'm not doing it, who's going to do it? So let's talk a little bit. I, I loved what you said before about how you do it for the right reasons, for the love of what you're making. And I think that gets lost a lot in, in startups, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, particularly maybe tech ones or Silicon Valley ones. Clearly, that's the, not the case for, for you all, where the joy, the, the passion, the, the beauty of what you're making is at the heart of what you're doing. So first of all, uh, we should acknowledge just how well received it's been. Can you talk a little bit about some of the success that you've had for having stayed true to that vision? Well, we're super honored um, by both the VR community, Hollywood, and also our our audience members. Um, but we've won nine Emmys, which I'm really proud of. And we've created all of those projects in real time. And one of the reasons I'm so proud of that is because it's the first time that something that was created in real time, a real time game engine was winning in traditional categories because we created both VR versions as well as 2D versions. And we also have um, one of the most downloaded VR experiences of all time. So Invasion has over 25 million uh, plays. We also made the first VR to traditional media deal. So we were we we had announced um, Joe Roth of Roth Kirschenbaum Films, who did Snow White and Huntsman, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, he uh, wanted to partner with us to turn Invasion into a full-length animated film, and then we ended up uh, creating. We ended up striking a first look deal with Fox Disney for all of our IP to become feature films, and now our IP are also being turned into multi-series uh, books uh, with McMillan and Ra Penguin Random House. And we also um, have several deals signed with some of the premium streamers for our IP also to become series. So we're just really excited and honored that Hollywood um, and traditional formats like our stories and characters so much that they see uh, potential in all the different mediums. And I just want to point out, I mean, you started in VR and in a time when honestly a lot of companies in VR are struggling, where the... the promise and the, the hopes of what VR would become have not really been realized. And I, I know plenty of other people who, who started around the same time in VR who who've either closed their efforts or had to pivot very dramatically to something that just to sort of survive. You guys are thriving. I mean, you, you've used VR to become the basis for a true studio telling stories across media and seem to just be kind of growing and, and picking up momentum as opposed to what some others have been doing. So is there anything you can point to that, that helps to explain why you've been able to 
be so successful and do all of this in, in a time when VR really, you know, didn't take off the way I think we all had hoped it, it would. And not that it won't still, <laughs> but but it, it's not, you know, the get rich quick space that, that a lot of people thought it was going to be five years ago. I think we were very um, diligent in figuring out what our differentiator was, how we were going to be different from others. Also keeping the eye on the prize, which is a great story is a great story. It doesn't matter what medium it's in. Like Shakespeare was a great play, great in written format, great animation, like Lion King, great musicals. And we said, if you have the core creative, that's good. You can understand the technology on top of it. But if you don't have that core good story, it doesn't matter how many bells and whistles you put on it. You're putting lipstick on a pig. So <laughs> you're really focused on creating really good, not that pigs are not beautiful. Um, but <laughs> we want to focus on on high quality stuff. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you, I mean, I was waiting for that answer actually, because <laughs> obviously that's <laughs> so core to what we all believe at the future of storytelling and and I do think that that you've done that so beautifully. You tell amazing stories. You have incredible characters. You really get your knitting right, um, and you're not getting confused by it being just about tech. You put your finger right on what so beautifully differentiates you and has made you be able. You, when I say you, I mean obviously your company be able to thrive in in this time. Tell us about your latest project. Namu is created and directed by Eric O, oh, and he was nominated for an Oscar this past year for a Best Animated Short. He created this short called Opera, uh, he, and he's a Korean-American filmmaker, and he hails previously from uh, Pixar, where he was an animator for many years. He's very talented. But his... Um, his work tends to be more like poetry. And so Namu is um, a literary, it's, it's like a narrative poem come to life. And it's a, it follows a man from birth all the way to the end and follows not only the man, but also this tree, which represents this man's life growing from a tiny little seed all the way through to a big tree. And it's a, uh, Eric was inspired by the passing of his grandfather. And it was the first uh, person he was close to that had passed away in his family. And so he was dealing with this for 10 years, not ready to tell the story. And it, this story was a way for him to deal with that loss and actually explain and find meaning in life and finding meaning in his grandfather's life and talk about what the meaning of life is. And it was actually so perfect because it was done during COVID. We started before COVID, but we ended up. Um, completing it during COVID. And it was a multi-continent uh, team even before COVID. So Korea, Germany, London, Canada, all over the place. We got the best quill artists together to create this. And given that it is about life and examining what is the meaning of each individual person's life, it's something I think that is striking chord in lots of people right now because of the pandemic, when people are thinking about what is really important. But we premiered it at Sundance earlier this year. And then we were at um, South by Southwest, Tribeca, all these different places. And then right now it's still uh, working its way through the festival circuit. But we're really proud of it. It seems to me that you really try to take on new challenges with every project and push yourself and, and not sort of um, fall into something that's more formulaic, uh, which obviously would be easier why do you do that? And, and what does that sort of say about where you are in your life cycle as a company? Well, we want to constantly be innovating because the world is going to move on, whether we're going to move so quickly or not. 
every project that we do has to push further on a hypothesis we have about how we make you matter. So for example, with Invasion, it was making you a character, <laughs> uh, eye contact, rudimentary stuff. And then the hand controllers came out for asteroids. Then it was, okay, besides being able to look different places, how can I actually use my hands to actually impact the story? Then, and how do you intersect a, a narrative with interactivity? Because sometimes when you give people control, the hand controllers, they don't want to listen to the story. They just want to <laughs> bash their hands and interact. So how do you do that balance? And then Crow the legend uh, was about experimenting. Well, what if interactivity was more like a toy? Like when you shake a snow globe and it just, or pop bubble wrap, it's just fun. It's not so much pressure. Like, oh my gosh, if I don't do the right thing, the story is going to end and bad things are going to happen. And people just found that delightful as a spirit of the season. They were able to make it snow or the flowers bloom. And then the next piece, Bonfire, was super interactive. We created an AI character engine so that the other characters would react to you totally different based off what you do. You could interact the whole time. The story would completely rearrange itself. And then Baba Yaga was even more subtle with the human interactions. And, and then Namu, right, is, is like literally hand-painted every single frame because there's no inter animation interpolation. So we had to literally hand paint every single frame and paint every single lighting scenario because it's not like like Maya's <laughs> huge tool. So yeah, so every single one of them, as you see, was was experimenting with how do we make you matter? What is your role as the viewer? I, I just want to really take a second and make sure everyone listening has caught the difference in your mission statement which is not to make content that matters, but content that makes you matter, right? It's just that word, but because I, I think everyone can kind of nod their head and say, oh, of course, you have a mission. Do you want to make work that makes a difference in the world? And you do, of course, but, but you put that through the lens of the, of the person who's experiencing your stories. And that subtle word just changes everything. And I think it's fundamental to how storytelling is shifting in the 21st century, right? From people being passive consumers, uh, just sit and watch or listen, to being the hero in the story, being the active participant. And I think about also how it just takes time for the people formerly known as the audience to evolve too, right? If you, at very first, people are uncomfortable with that role, or they're still learning the technology, or they're learning you know, what, what agency they really can have in these stories. And you're helping to bring them along as, as they become more experienced co-creators of the stories with you. Absolutely. And there's also just the research shows. A lot of my venture capitalist friends are constantly showing me all this research that baby boomers, in terms of what types of media they prefer, top preference is passively consuming movies or TV. And with the youngest generations, I think it was Z, um, it's completely like that is super low. Their number one preferred medium is games and very interactive content. So, you know, this is also just going with the times. It, there's always going to be a place for passive because I don't always want to be super engaged. I just want to relax. And watch right, right. I don't always want to. But given the trends of the interest and love of games, you know, being able to have those rich worlds but your ability to interact inside them, I think, is a is a winning formula. Yeah. I wonder of any other insights you have from creating these kinds of stories that empower your 
I don't even know the right word. You know, I, we used to say audience, right? But but that's not the right word. Participants, maybe now. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or players. I like that one. Yeah. References gaming and Shakespeare. But from having made successful stories that empower the participants, how you think that's evolving in terms of what kinds of stories they want to be in? I notice also there's there's tremendous cultural diversity in the titles you take on. Is that intentional because you're asking a broad diversity of, of human beings to step into these roles? Absolutely. I was blown away by a lot of the research that Jeremy Balenson at the Stanford um, lab did showing experiences where if you actually go through experience as like a black woman, as someone becoming or or if you're somebody becoming homeless, um, all these, all these different types of people that afterwards you're more likely to have empathy and, and feelings towards what it's like to be different from yourself. So absolutely. Except in animation, it's interesting because um, for Baba Yaga, we made your name Sasha. So it could be either a male name or a or female name because uh, we're like whatever you, it is you are. Um, but in some of the other characters, you're just an animal. So it's a lot easier <laughs> to do that too. And in a way you can relate to other people more when you don't see, you don't bring your biases to them. But absolutely um, having a diverse perspective matters in that case. We traditionally in Western cultures um, focus on the hero's journey but we were really excited with Crow the Legend to tell a different type of story. And that's the indigenous worldview story because Crow the Legend is inspired from Native American legend. And so in Native American culture, it's not about the individual, it's about the community. So Sarah Eaglehart, uh, she was CEO of Native Americans and Philanthropy, who is executive producer of our project. Um, she she has the coolest name, Sarah Eaglehart. But her and also uh, Randy Edmonds, who is a Kiowa Kado tribal elder, were both um, voices in our production and producers. And so they told us, hey, there's a scene where you're flying in the uh, heavens and you're flying next to some stars, a constellation, you see this constellation of a crow. And in our original version, you were just like passing by and continuing on your path. And she's like, no, no, I want to spend more time with the constellation of the crow. I want to spend more time with um, mother earth, father sky, sister moon, brother wind. Like it's not all about crow. It's not all about the individual. So we changed our, um, narrative a whole bunch like for example just in that section we had you fly alongside crow for a long time and go off the story path to make sure that you had enough time with with the constellation and we just thought that was really interesting in a different way of telling stories um and i know we've had like the western three-act structure hero's journey does really well but you know, it's it's time for new stuff. <laughs> it's exciting to be able to tap into the, these new t types of stories and new ways of telling stories. So we're really excited about being able to do that. I think a lot about why we're so stuck on the hero's journey and how much negative effect that's having on our world right now. I mean, if you if you think about 
even just this ties back to that idea of the the entrepreneur, right? The white male entrepreneur who's the hero who's supposed to single-handedly go, you know, with with the opportunity of his future, as you were saying, you know, the bias is on what he will accomplish. Uh, like it's all ties back to that hero's journey narrative. And we need all sorts of other kinds of, of models for how we get ourselves out of the challenges we're facing today. So Absolutely. I cannot agree more because it's uh, honestly, it's been confusing for me because Asian culture is about community and it's about respecting like your elders and there's this like power hierarchy. And it's about being, it's a virtue to be humble. You're never supposed to say how amazing you are. And if somebody compliments your kid, you don't say, oh yeah, thanks. My kid is great. You're like, no, your kid is great. And it's, it's like, no, your kid, no, your kid. And I always thought this was really weird because then I'm growing up in the U.S., right? I was born here. Um, and then I was like in like the majority during the daytime and then coming home to my Asian values. And they're so clashing, especially in Silicon Valley, where me as an entrepreneur now, I have to uh, I can't be humble. I can be humble inside, but I have to say how awesome I am. I have to sell and it's all about me. And I, yeah, and also just being a woman also, you're also not, it's not considered attractive for you to be like that as a woman. Um, so then I just have to be okay with not being attractive as a woman because I'd rather be respected than liked. But it's sad that I have to make that choice. But it's just interesting how like to try to keep both values inside me, both the Asian and Western values and trying to see uh, how I can use it to my advantage. But it, it was very confusing <laughs> growing up with that. Yeah, that makes total sense. And what I feel a little bit is like that struggle, right? That conflict of cultures, that struggle between the you know arrogant hero and the humble community, respect your elders, you know, work together. Those seem to me to be things that you are playing through or working out in the stories you tell. I do think that's that's really beautiful, powerful, and and part of the reason why it's so successful, because your experience is more common to what many many people in the world feel. We're a world of diverse people and you need to tell stories for everyone and not just for the hero <laughs> who's taking over Silicon Valley. You know, our tech our tech heroes that we seem to give you know way too much weight to. And with all the the metaverse stuff, I mean, where you are uh your own character in there, like what responsibility do we have as creators in building these worlds for that other people are a part of? Um but it, it does give you an opportunity to experiment, right? Meet you as the player or audience with the different types of decisions you would make and try them on and see how they feel. But I do think as creators, we don't want to steer you in ways that are going to hurt society. Well, Maureen, I, I can't thank you enough for being on the FOSS podcast. And as I think about this conversation, I just have this sense of, letting everybody be able to come and see the world through the eyes of the five-year-old Maureen and um, <laughs> how much better the world will be as we all get to experience it with, with your unique perspective and those of your collaborators and, and just with that sort of empowered sense of, of what a young girl can do in this world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
big thanks to Maureen for joining me on the podcast today. You can find links to Baobab's past work, learn more about their new piece, Namu, and find a full transcript of today's conversation by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend or colleague who might enjoy it too. FOST also produces a monthly newsletter that's filled with valuable information for storytellers of all stripes. You can subscribe for free by visiting our website at fost.org, where you'll also find a wealth of other great resources. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. We'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on.